Please be seated. <clears throat> Good morning. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant. And let me also uh, extend a warm welcome to you if you're visiting. We're glad that you could be with us uh, this morning. Thanks for being here. You find us in the middle of a series in the book of James. So if you'd like to be turning there, we're going to be in James chapter 3 this morning. Looking at verses 13 through 18. You'll find that on page 1012 of your blue chair Bible. If you're using one of those, you need one, you should find one under the chair around you. As I said, we've been going through uh, James for the last number of weeks. let you know the next two weeks we'll be taking a break from James as we have a two-part series on talking about Palm Sunday and Easter these next couple weeks. And then we'll be back in James in three weeks. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the gift that it is to us. And it's one we desperately need. Whether we realize it or not, maybe we come, many of us come this morning... Um, maybe possibly encouraged, glad for a good week, and very aware of your presence. Others of us come weighed down with the cares of our lives, um, struggling from things without and things within, very much in need of your encouragement, your word of peace, your word of challenge, all these things. We are always in need of your word. Bring it to us now. We pray, we thank you that we have that here in Scripture. Would you breathe life into it by, your, by the power of your Spirit? Open our hearts that we might hear you. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. So that's where we turn now. If you notice this passage, opens up with a question. For James, it's, an, it's a very important question. He says this, you know, who is wise and understanding among you. Throughout Scripture, this is an important question. So it's the one that James focuses us on this morning. Who is wise? And what does it mean to be wise? It's a topic that James has taken up already in chapter 1, but he comes back to it here. So we're going to come back to it here as we look at wisdom. He says, who is, who is wise? Now, throughout Scripture, you'll find, uh, you'll find it addressing this life of wisdom. Uh, and you find that maybe in one of the most concentrated ways in the book of Proverbs. And as one Old Testament scholar says from the book of Proverbs, he, de- he defines wisdom this way, and it's a helpful way to get our hands on it. Wisdom is the art of skillful living. The art of skillful living, a living well and rightly in God's world in relationship with Him. Now, let me read just a couple quotes for you from the book of Proverbs, just to kind of hone in on what James is getting at here, which is that wisdom is crucial for us. This comes from Proverbs chapter 4. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth, do not forsake her and she will keep you, love her and she will guard you, 
The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. And this from Proverbs chapter 3. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Nothing you desire can compare with wisdom. And we are people who desire many things, aren't we? James says, who is wise? And again, he's picking up a theme he hit on in verse or in chapter 1. Here's what he says in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom is something we need, and wisdom is something we must ask for, and James brings it back to us here. And here's what we're going to see about specifically about wisdom and a life that is wise in these next few verses. James tells us that wisdom reveals itself in a beautiful life that is committed to a gospel vision and that embodies a gospel manner. Okay, a beautiful life committed to a gospel vision and that embodies a gospel manner. First, the wisdom reveals itself in a beautiful life. Okay, again, he says, who is wise? Verse 13, he answers that question. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of of wisdom. Now, our English translation, it, it, it's, a little, um, it's a little flat for what's going on here. He says, by his good conduct. There are a couple different words in Greek to, to say something is good. One of those is agathos, and it's sort of the common word for good. Things are good. How was your day? It was good. How was your dinner? It was good. And there's another word that's also used throughout the New Testament, but has a slightly more focused meaning. It's the word kalos, and it means good, but it's the, the root of this word means something like this, something that is, that is good in the sense of being beautiful and attractive. And that's the word that James picks here. He says, who is wise among you, the one who, um, whose conduct is good? And conduct has to do with a whole way of life, a whole lifestyle. So to spin it back around, James is saying this, who is wise among you? The one who has a beautiful life, a good, beautiful way of life about him. So he's talking about a way of life that isn't simply like technically good. Okay, you, you check off all the right little boxes, but it's one that emanates something deeper than that. It's, a, it's, it's the pieces of good that come together to form something that is really beautiful. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, if, if, if you appreciate visual art, and you can imagine going through an art museum. My wife and I lived in Philadelphia for a number of years, and we go to the Philadelphia Art Museum all the time. And you, you know what it's like if you go into a museum like that where there are just, you know, there are um, uh, hallways upon hallways of artwork everywhere, and, and, and most of which you, you sort of just walk on by. And you might stop and glance at one and notice that the artist was maybe a very competent, capable artist. You know, they, uh, the good brush strokes, amazing perspective, uh, you know, a sense of proportion. But it might not grab you, right? I mean, it could be technically good in some ways, but not grab you. But you walk a few paintings down and you turn and suddenly something just leaps off the wall at you. And there's a painting and you say, that is beautiful. Same technical skill, but there's something more to it. Something that just grabs you. Art has a way of drawing us in, in that way when it is good, when it is beautiful. For those of you that are uh, musicians, um, you know, imagine listening to 
a piece of music, a score of music that's played by two different people. One is uh, a, a learning piano student who's become competent enough to, you know, to play all the right notes. And, and, and they get their way through the piece. And then, then you hear a, a, a concert pianist come up and, and play the same work. And suddenly when, when she sits down at the piano and begins to play those very same notes, it just leaps out at you unbelievably. You know the power of music when it is beautiful to grab our hearts and our souls. And the two people were playing the very same piece of music. But in the hands of one, it became something incredibly beautiful. And James is pointing us towards a life that is not simply good by checking off the boxes, but one that actually becomes beautiful, that radiates beauty to the world around us. He's saying if we would be wise people, then we need to be people who live lives that are good in such a way that they are beautiful. And this passage comes for James in the middle on both sides of it of a section that has to do with our dealings with other people, our relationships. If you were here last week, or you can just glance up in the first few verses, uh, first number of verses in chapter 3, it's all about how we use our tongues. And he's not talking about how you talk to yourself when you're alone in your room. He's talking about how you use your tongues when you're interacting with other people and the power of the tongue, for good or for ill. And then after this, in the start of uh, chapter 4, which we'll get to in in a few weeks, he talks about dissension and quarrels that are rising up among God's people that he's addressing in the church. He's talking to them about their relationships. And so here he's focusing this picture of wisdom and a beautiful life around this topic of life, of our relationships with other people. He said, if your life is going to be beautiful, then your relationships have to be made right and beautiful in a specific and a certain way that he's going to get to here. But I was struck this week just thinking about this important um, call that James give us, gives us and the whole scripture points to, which is the fact that we are called into community with each other. We're called first, if you're someone who comes into a relationship with Christ, into community with other Christians in the church. And we're called to bring a sense of community to the world around us, too, as we bring Jesus to the world around us. But we're people who are made to operate in community. So I was having coffee with a retired friend of mine here in town, a neighbor this week, and he'd just been in Colorado for a conference and to visit an old friend. And he told me about this friend. He said this friend was one, they were, they were good friends in high school. This guy was in his wedding. Uh, but they lost contact somewhere after that, and, and he, hadn't, he hadn't seen him in 30 years. And he was going out to visit him. And so, you know, 30 years of, of no uh, time together. And then they're together for four days. And, and he said he was struck by the change that had happened in this man's life over the last number of decades. He said when he was in high school, he was uh, one of those guys that's sort of the, the center of attention. He, he was kind of wild that, that continued through his college years and into a few years of skiing and living out of his, you know, trunk in Austria and doing all kinds of things. And uh, just this uh, very social, what sounded like this very social person, but now at this point in his life, decades later, uh, he was an only child. His parents had passed away. He had chosen never to marry. And he uh, really seemed to have very little social connection of any kind, though he had lived in the city in Colorado for a number of years. And my friend said, you know, we were there for, I was there for four days, and he said the, the phone never rang. Uh, and uh, he never seemed to have any thirst for any, I mean, he was pleasant to talk to, we got along fine, but he was, you, you could tell there wasn't much connection with the world around him with anyone. He said his friend is incredibly interesting, that he's, um, uh, he's an avid reader, reads all kinds of things. Uh, he uh, is a, um, an avid listener of music, sort of a jazz aficionado. And my friend is a uh, musicologist, so that was an 
area that they shared. He says he's incredibly knowledgeable about all these things, and his life seems intellectually rich, but there's no connection with other people. And he asked him what he does on a typical day, and he said he'll get up in the morning and go take his dog on a long walk, and he'll come back, and he'll read the paper and eat breakfast, and then he goes on a long walk in the afternoon. And my friend asked him, you know, how long's your walk? He said, well, I'll go for, you know, three or four hours walking through the woods in the mountains. And then he'll come back, and he will um, spend several hours preparing a gourmet meal. He's a gourmet chef, and he'll eat, and he'll read, and he'll go to bed. Now, here's the thing about this guy. Uh, from all my friend could tell, is he, he, really, he really enjoys his life. He, he finds it um, very satisfying and fulfilling. But here's the thing as James looks over the shoulder. Um, this kind of life, he says, it, you know, it may be deeply satisfying for him, but it's not, in the words of James, a beautiful life. It's not really a wise life, though incredibly intellectually rich, because it's not connected. And it's not invested in other people. And that's where James points us. A beautiful, wise life is lived out in relationship with others. Okay, so he talks about it being a beautiful life. But he goes on and says that it's a beautiful life geared in one direction. He says it's committed to a gospel vision. A life that's committed to a gospel vision. We see this right at the punchline of where James is taking us in the end here, down at verse 18. He says, A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay, harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, he is speaking to people in the midst of their relationships with each other as a community. He says, what makes a beautiful life? One that is invested in bringing righteousness and peace to the community around you. That is the good fruit that a wise and beautiful life brings. And of course, when James says this, he's following right along the footsteps of uh, Jesus, who said this in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James says they work towards a, a harvest of righteousness and peace. Righteousness itself, is a, is a, it's a relational word. Things are righteous when they are put right in relationship with each other, when we are made right in our relationship with God, as that spills out in right relationships with our neighbors. He says that's the kind of relationships you're going to have. That's the kind of community that you're building. He says that you're to sow it in peace. Okay, think about what is involved in sowing something. Here are the images of a farmer sowing seed, and maybe you've done that recently. Uh, I went out a few weekends ago into in, our yard, which is often green, but it's not because there's any grass there. Uh, you know, we have weeds, we have bare patches of ground, and, and again, I had my six-month urge of we're going we're gonna to make some grass here in our yard. My wife just smiled and said, sure. So I, so I went out and got... Grassy and spread it all around, trying to be faithful to water it. And but but here's the thing about sowing, and it's the whole reason I had to sow seed in my yard because grass doesn't grow there, right? That's why you go sow seed. If you want to have a harvest of wheat, what do you do? You go sow wheat because you know that until you sow it there, it's not the land doesn't have it. It's not there. Okay, now that's. Okay, granted, incredibly obvious. But here's the thing. When James tells us that we must sow peace, what's he saying? There is no peace until it is sown by someone. Peace has to be made. It has to be grown. And it means that we, following in the footsteps of Jesus and listening to the words of James, are called to be people who go and sow peace. 
Now, right in the middle of this, James gives us a picture of how things can go oh so wrong. Look, look with me again in verses 14 through 16. He's been talking about what it means to live a wise and beautiful life. And he says there's another kind of wisdom, a false kind of wisdom. And here's what he says. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. What does he say? There is a competing kind of wisdom. And it's one that is marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. If you're, again, if you're here last week when we were talking about the tongue, and he says, uh, you know, with our tongues, we, we use them to bless God and curse our neighbor. And he said it shouldn't be so. And then James uses some illustrations, one of which he says, it's like a, you know, a spring of water doesn't pour forth both fresh water and salt water. Okay, the word the translators use there for salt water is the same word here, bitter, bitter water. He said there's a wisdom that's marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, we, we speak about ambition in, in some positive ways at times. Somebody who's ambitious that wants to use their gifts well, they want to they work hard, they want to make something of the world around them. We look, I mean, that's a, that's a good thing, but what is translated here as selfish ambition is a single Greek word that carries this nuance of strife and of antagonism. It's that kind of ambition. A selfish ambition, one that is not simply trying to make the world better around you and make something of your life, but one that is out to do anything that it takes to accomplish that. To tear down anyone or anything that stands in your way. A selfish ambition that brings destruction in community. This word for ambition, same one that we see in Philippians 2, verse 3, when Paul says, Do nothing from rivalry. Selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And James says, where does, the, where does this, you know, this sort of false wisdom come from? Verse 15, he says, it's earthly and unspiritual and demonic. What's he saying? Here is a wisdom that is generated and comes from a source other than God, the source of all good things. He goes so far as to say, it's not from above, it is from below, it is hellish, it is demonic. It's the enemy of this picture of a beautiful life that that promotes peace. Rather, it destroys it. This false wisdom, it also brings forth a harvest. He says, a beautiful life and good wisdom brings forth a harvest of righteousness and peace. But this wisdom, verse 16, yields disorder in every vile practice. In other words, this kind of wisdom, when it grabs hold of you and when it grabs hold of me and of a community, it brings just destruction. Things fall apart. So it brings up the question for us as we look at these two different kinds of wisdom and these two kinds of, of life, one that's beautiful and one that's not. You know, are we committed to this vision that James gives us of a beautiful life, a gospel vision of sowing peace? Or is that what we're about? Uh, you know, when you read verse 14 you th- and you read about selfish ambition and, and bitter jealousy, nobody thinks, you know, that really describes me. I couldn't have summed it up better myself. You know, when I think of those words, I, I think of myself. We don't tend to think that way because often we don't necessarily recognize it in ourselves. But James assumes that it's among us too. He says this uh, again to the church. You know, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, he's not speaking hypothetically. He's not talking to these, this group of Christians about the world around him. He says, if you've got this, 
If you've got this in your heart. He goes on and says, don't, don't lie about it. Don't deceive yourself. Don't try to convince yourself that you have a beautiful life when you, when you don't. And it brings up that question of, is that true? And to what degree is that true of us? When we speak about what James is speaking of, of being a peacemaker, someone who sows peace, honestly, through the years, I've found this is one of the most challenging parts of following Jesus for me. To be somebody who sows peace. Because you know how many opportunities that we have to sow something else. You know how many situations you find yourself in where uh, there's a lot of fertile ground, but nobody around seems to really care much about sowing seeds of peace. Those being committed to sowing peace in such a way when that you want, that I want real peace more than wanting to be right. Do you want peace more than that? Wanting real peace more than wanting to look good. Or sometimes wanting real peace more than simply wanting a veneer of calm so you don't have to really deal with the real mess of life and relationships around you. How can you know? How can I know what kind of life we're living if it's a beautiful life or it's one that's ensnared in this false kind of wisdom? Well, I think James would say simply this. Look at the fruit around you that you see in your relationships with other people. Is there disorder in every vile practice? Is there dissension and hardness and mistrust and strife in your family, in your marriage, in your friendships, your relationships with extended family, your relationships here at church? He says, look at the fruit. What is coming up out of the ground? Are we seeing, are we beginning to see the fruits of righteousness and peace in those relationships? Or the presence of something else, something more sinister, something that would tear us apart? And are we longing to see good fruit and praying towards that end and giving ourselves to it? How are we going to get it? How are we going to get this kind of wisdom and this kind of beautiful life? Well, James gives us a head nod towards this. When he speaks uh, in verse 15, when he speaks of the false wisdom, he says, this is not the wisdom that what? Comes down from above. He says, there's a real and beautiful and true wisdom that comes to us and comes from above. That he, in fact, says to us, only comes from knowing the peace of God brought to us through Jesus. Reconciliation with God. Let me ask you another question about sowing, whether it's grass seed or something else in your field. When you go and sow that seed, well, where does that seed come from? If you're going to sow grass seed, then it had to have come from grass, right? James tells us, points us to, if we're going to sow peace, then we have to have taken in peace ourselves. You can't sow something that you don't have in your hand, right? So James points us again back to the beauty of this gospel uh, vision that comes not only for us in our relationships with each other, but this gospel vision that comes as we ourselves are ones who experience the peace that God brings to us in Jesus. He says, unless you know that, how are you going to spread peace around you? Unless you know that there is peace between you and God, that you're no longer at war, that you no longer have to be afraid, that you no longer have to be ashamed. 
That you no longer have to vie for position with the people in your school, in your class, in your work, in your family, because you are safe and secure in Jesus. Until we know that kind of peace. We can't be a people who sow peace. We must be a people who know this peace from Jesus and follow him. Jesus, whom Isaiah calls what? Do you remember? The Prince of Peace. This peace that comes to us through his death and resurrection for us. Paul mentions it in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says again in Colossians chapter 1 that it is a costly peace. He says, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. That peace won for us. So he says if we're going to be people committed to a gospel vision, we must be of peace. We must be people who have experienced and known that peace ourselves. But James doesn't stop there. Okay, And and maybe here's here's more the, the, the pointed end of it for us. This morning he doesn't say only that we must have this gospel vision. He says that it must be embodied in a gospel manner. And he points us towards that in verse, both verse 13 and verse 17. One of the first things he says about this wisdom in verse 13, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. could also be translated in the humility of wisdom. And he goes on in verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. He's painting a picture, not only of a gospel end, but a gospel manner. The way in which the gospel of peace embodies itself in us, that we would be people who reflect these kind of characteristics. This is driven home to me this week. I was listening to a sermon online and someone that I, I listened to on, on occasion and was then relaying the story to a, a friend of mine who's also a pastor and said, you know, th- uh, this guy, he said some, some, some great things, very winsome speaker in a lot of ways, but he, it also just kind of, this particular sermon had this hard edge to it and, and this real, almost real anger in parts of it. And I said, you know, so he had, he had all this great sort of gospel content, but then there was this kind of weirdness of his manner. And my friend said to me, he said, you know, uh, unless you have a gospel manner, then you don't really have a gospel message. Unless you really have a gospel manner, you don't really have a gospel message. That it is not only the words that are said and the truth that is held up, but the gospel comes to us in a certain way that brings not a hardness, but a softness. It is meant to come and bring a real change, to embody the very things that James points us to here. Humility. He talks about that in verse 13. Now, in James's Greco-Roman world, humility was not considered a virtue. It was considered a vice. It was considered uh, beneath the dignity of a person to, to really um, view others perhaps more highly than themselves or to have that kind of concern for others or that kind of reticence to be able to say, you know, I don't have all the answers. And I don't have the last word on this. And I'm called to serve and not simply to rule. It was not looked on as a virtue at all, but it's the one James holds up for us. It's one that Jesus embodies for us. 
And he goes on, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. This one struck me in that uh, what, what he's getting at here is someone who's open to reason is one, not simply who can follow logical arguments. Someone who's open to reason in this sense is one who is open to the possibility of being persuaded. Does that mark us in our conversations? When we enter in in disagreements, you know, I might really be wrong here. Let me listen Open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I don't really know how to explain it other than just to say it. Here are the, here are the characteristics he holds up. And if you've ever seen these at work in someone's life around you, you know it's a little bit like walking down that hallway in the art museum where suddenly you see something and it just stops you in your tracks and you say, that is beautiful. Because you know what it's like when we see this in someone's life. It's what God calls us to in our own lives. A gospel vision and a gospel manner are meant to be inextricably bound together. It's not just the things that we say. Peace can only be sown in the way that we do it as well. I was thinking yesterday, uh, another sort of horticultural metaphor. Uh, We were here yesterday, a bunch of us, you know, working on trying to weed the gardens around here and, and make things look beautiful again around the church. And so I was uh, doing that very incredibly skilled labor of, of pulling weeds. That's what I was qualified for. So uh, I was in this little roundabout over here. The, you turn around in the, in the parking lot, and there I am. I'm weeding on one side and um, talking uh, uh, along the way with Daniel Malone. I'm going to embarrass him. Daniel's one of our church members. And Daniel, uh, he's got a degree in botany. He's a, um, he's a landscape architect. He's, he's involved in wetlands renewal. And so he, he knows plants. So uh, we look over the edge of this little planter thing over there, and there, there are these bushes low to the ground that have just, uh, just overrun the banks, and they're two feet into the, into the driveway. So I look at those, and I say, you know, I think those probably need to be trimmed back some. Uh, and Daniel says, okay, yeah, I'll be, I'll be glad to do that. So while I'm doing the unskilled stuff, picking weeds, he goes around, and, and I, I come and watch him. And instead of doing what I would have done, which is to go for, you know, the big uh, hedge clipper. I mean, that's how you prune things. Everybody knows that. Uh, you know, Daniel is like Mr. Miyagi over there with this little piece of, these little scissors. He's just cutting here a little bit here and a little bit there. And I come back around a few minutes later. And I said, Daniel, you know, uh, I could have done what you've just done in half the time it took you. So clearly there's something important I don't know. Uh, and he said, yeah. And so he went on to explain to me. <laughs> The whole object, when you prune something well, and Proverbs would say it this way, wisely, skillfully, that you prune it in such a way that it doesn't look like it just got pruned. And I thought, huh. So you, you don't want it to look like somebody just came through with a chainsaw like my bushes at home do. Okay, this was, this was enlightening for me. And as I watched Daniel skillfully and wisely prune that hedge, what I saw was he would take little snips here and there, and he'd, he'd go back in, and he'd cut stuff that you couldn't see. And, and then by the end, and, and we're going to have a traffic accident out here on the way out because everybody's going to look right there on that. <laughs> it looks like nobody trimmed it. It looks great, right? <laughs> because somebody trimmed it well. And you know, as we think about that in terms of what James is talking about, okay, raising this harvest of righteousness and peace, intending to it. Are we going to be people that have a gospel manner that embodies that? Are we going to be able to be people who come in and know how to, uh, you know, clip off just the right branch at just the right place? 
who's going to be able to prune a little bit here and a little bit there, who's going to be able to know when to address something in a relationship and when to let it go and when to let it grow. Are we the guys with the, the hedge clippers? James says we're to be people who embody a gospel manner with these kind of characteristics, that we would come to our relationships with the vision in mind of we want to see God's peace reign here. And with the manner that's characterized by this that allows us to step into those relationships and actually work for good. You know, do we have not only a gospel vision but a gospel manner? How do we deal with conflict when it arises? Are we quick to speak directly to the person that we need to rather than harboring bitterness or resentment, rather than speaking about them to others? Are we committed to the, as committed to the reputation and the good of those around us as we are to our own reputation and our own good? Are we quick to speak to the offender or to the one that we have offended? Are we quick to forgive? Are we eager to heal? Do we hold highly the good of another? And are we willing to come in and show these kind of characteristics, gospel manner, as we tend those relationships? Just for a minute, think about the manner in which God deals with you and deals with me. The infinite patience with which he deals with us. The costliness of his forgiveness. His wholehearted love for us in the face of our half-hearted obedience. His unmeasurable tenderness. Matthew 12, 20, quotes Isaiah, says this about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Our God comes to us with this vision of sowing peace and righteousness. There may be a harvest of peace. And he does it in a way that is tender, that allows growth rather than inhibits it, that brings forth growth rather than cutting it off at the ground. He does that with us. And he says if we are going to be peacemakers who have this same gospel vision of peace, then we're going to have to embody the characteristics of peace as well. So may that be us, people with radiant, beautiful lives, that play out in our relationships in such a way that we see this kind of harvest of peace and of righteousness in our families, in our marriages, in restored relationships between parents and children, in our relationships with our neighbors, in our relationships here at church. Would this kind of fruit mark us? Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us grow in us beautiful lives that are wise, that are given to the gospel ends of making your peace known and demonstrated and alive around us, and that are characterized by this kind of gospel manner. Make us wise and beautiful. Lord, take the um, hedge clippers out of our hands. Give us the right tools and the right eye. Wisdom to know when to speak and when to be silent. Wisdom to know how to speak, how to care. Wisdom to know how to embrace those around us and restore places that are hurt, to heal where there is strain, and to continue to prune and grow what is healthy and good. We lift this up to you. And we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. 
who must be our Lord and Savior in this. Amen.